Hello and welcome to It's The Fix, a podcast focused on helping you return balance to your mental and physical fitness by giving up the short-term fixes we all chase and finding a long-term fix that sticks. Thank you so much for listening on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening there, please give us a, a star review and like and subscribe anywhere else you're listening to the show. I'm Matt Tompkins, and on today's podcast, I'm excited to talk to our guest, Willie Miller, formerly a uh, star fullback for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, whose journey would take him through more than a decade of alcohol and prescription painkiller addiction. Uh, He weighed more than 400 pounds at one point, but with the help of others, a local organization, and the right treatment facility, he found his way back to sobriety, recovery, and emotional stability, where he has today finished school and will soon be heading into Creighton's nursing school next year. So here's my conversation with Willie Miller. But I, I had the opportunity to meet you and I didn't honestly didn't didn't know I knew you played, I was aware of you, but like I didn't know I got to know your story that was relatable to me and I think so many people, especially for this podcast, that's the story. That's the Willie Miller I got to meet because we met through the Nebraska Greats Foundation who uh, I do a, a lot of work with and you were one of the recipients that was a it was a big um big part of your life and we can talk about that a little bit but when i heard your story man it it resonated me on on multiple levels because it i don't know if you have this experience when you go through uh, addiction when you go through depression and all the things that compound each other and you find somebody else who's gone through that too and it's almost like you want to want to run up and just hug them and just say like hey let's talk and i felt that with you i felt like man this guy he's been through the ringer too, and uh, even more so than me, and uh, so it was it was inspirational, and it has been inspirational to see uh, what you've done with yourself and the transformation, not just uh, physically but emotionally, mentally, with school and what you're doing with your your life. So so take us back to that moment, like where after your playing days, kind of what happened and what where where did your life go at that point before it led you into um, the Nebraska Grace Foundation and their opportunity to help you with your uh, your your medical needs? All right. So just to kind of, I don't know, give you the cliff notes because yeah. we'll be talking forever here, is once I got done playing, you know, there was something that was missing. Um, if you knew me in college, you know, and you saw me during the day, you just saw a totally different person than the guy that was on the field because, again, when I went to class – didn't wear any Nebraska stuff because, again, I wasn't – I didn't like the whole stereotypical football player thought process. So I wore none of that. I sat in the front row. You know, I studied my butt off. I mean, so I worked hard. Um, but, you know, when I got done playing, I realized that the field was a place that I was able to take out all of my feelings of aggression and the, the feelings of hurt, um, the sadness, just all these post-traumatic things that I didn't – recognize at the time right so again I could function just fine throughout the day with the classes all that stuff but then again the field and practice was what allowed me to get that out so that then the next day I'm able to go back in and do what I need to do in the classroom and be fine happy joyful all that stuff so when I'm done playing now I'm there's no more field there's no more outlet there is just simply doing that other part of the equation I always been doing but again at that point couldn't recognize that that field aspect is what helped keep that in balance and in check. So I was really successful when I got done with college, and I got um, hired right away to work for Eli Lilly and Company doing pharmaceutical sales. So I went out, started doing that, but also it almost seemed like from the very get-go um, that the downward hill started happening just as much as the success happened because walking off that field, I pretty much was given a 
a prescription for pain pills because I need to have back surgery. I mean, that's the main reason between that and my neck issues that I didn't go to the next level with football. So in taking the pain pills, the thing that I didn't realize is that, again, through days of stress, frustration, dealing with coworkers and peers and all that stuff, which is fine and dandy, that's life. But I found that not only would I take my pain pills to alleviate the pain I felt in my body, I started taking them to deal with the emotions and the feelings that I also started experiencing in a, in a professional environment. And it was a very uh, stressful environment because there's a lot of information you have to know in pharmaceutical sales. Mm-hmm. You know, there's training you go to, all that good stuff, and, and there's a lot of, again, it's just, there's just a lot of pressure. So, again, that's kind of where the uptake in the uh, pain pills started to occur. And then also drinking, you know, started to really kind of take off too because, again, at the end of the day, with the stress and everything else and being married and having a kid, it just all compounded. And it was just like every single day at the end of the day, it's like, let's just numb it all away, you know. So through that journey, there was, like I said, there was the upswing and then it started to just slowly start to decline. And in that declining nature, it's just the mix of the, the pills and the alcohol um, I just got lost, and I also thought at that time that I was just crazy. I mean, really, I thought at that point in time that I just had kind of lost it mentally, and um, I got put on a bunch of uh, bipolar medications because, again, the symptoms that I was showing, the whole when you're done drinking that day or whatever, the next day your brain's trying to catch up, so you're thinking you're having these racing thoughts. you got yeah. these different emotional peaks and valleys and all that stuff that you experience from not taking your pain pills and, and then the drinking. So, again, all these signs and symptoms, they, they do mimic what a person who is bipolar has, but when you're an, an alcoholic or an addict like me, that's not the fix, right? And so when you're on those medications, all it does is it, it, it's even worse because you just get so lost, so numb. And that's one of the things I want to point out to people that don't know about pain pills is that, yes, they are a great short-term, short-term fix, you know, in the right setting around the right people. But when you get a script that's a little bit longer, you know, it becomes very dangerous because, again, this this is going to sound like a very corny and cliche type of saying, but it's so much truth to it, is that it not only numbs the pain, it starts to numb the brain. Yeah. And so only if you've been there can you really recognize what I'm saying about that because other people, they might it's, sit there thinking, oh, that's just the silliest thing in the world. It's like a it's like a warm blanket hug I, I, is the only way I can describe it because and it's it's interesting your story because it's it's not that uncommon and people that's what people need to realize with with prescription pain pills prescribed at the rate they were because I was the same deal I had had multiple surgeries had just had a back surgery and a reconstructive hand surgery in the same year was given just carte blanche with the prescriptions just here's 120 oxycodone 15 milligram doesn't even have the um, acetaminophen acetaminophen in it it. so you can start shooting it up if you want to eventually I mean it you can it's it gets to an intense level pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea they were addictive. I had no idea anything about them. I just knew that when I got off them, I got really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And that was the first moment that I thought, wow, why well, I've been on these for like two straight years. Uh, but that's the thing people need to realize. You don't have to necessarily have the genetics of an addict to become addicted to prescription pain pills. That's why they're so unique. You take them for a week to 30 days and you can get you can get hooked on them. You can get addicted to them just because anybody who takes something like that, your brain is going to become dependent on it. And I had the same thing happen to me with the bipolar disorder where it was those pain pills. I would be manic because I would have tons of energy. Mm-hmm. I was producing the television show at the time and I was like, all right, I got to do this. I got to pull an all nighter. 
give me some pain pills, I'm good to go. And then I would crash and I would go through withdrawals and I would have deep, deep depressions. And so they looked at it, oh, well, you're just bipolar. You just got to figure this out. Right. So, but yeah, continue with with where you were at there. Yeah, so definitely. And what I want to do too is I want to point out what you brought up right then is just the short window it takes to get addicted to pain pills, yeah. right? And it's like, and you, you, you hit it, right? Yeah, I mean, you hit the, the nail with the hammer when you said it's like a nice warm hug, right? And it's like, one of the things I want to point out right now in this pandemic that a lot of people aren't real. there's so much going on, right? There's so many things that are distracting us, so many things to look at. But one thing you need to look at when it comes to pain pills is that due to this pandemic and this whole situation, surgeries, elective surgeries were shut down. Mm-hmm. So you've got so many people who were on a prescribed pain pill for like a two-week window who that two-week window got stressed about a three-month, two-month to three-month time period before yeah. they could get their surgery. So one of the unfortunate things, and this is why people need to take note when it comes to pain pills with oxycodone, with hydrocodone, especially the oxys and the roxies, yeah. is that we're going to have one heck of an episode where there's going to be a lot of people coming out of this whole thing here in a couple of years who are truly going to be addicted to this, and it's going to swing to an uptick in heroin. It's going to swing to an uptick of people that want to take fentanyl. I mean, because, again, once you feel that warmth of that comforting feeling, especially when you're hurting, I mean, you need it then when you have a surgery, like you're going to have a surgery. But, again, any prolonged use of that, man, it, it's just uh, it's, it's a mess. It is. And you're right. And people think, oh, I'll never be, I'll never do heroin. I could never get to that extreme. You can and you will, because most of the people who are doing heroin are doing it because they got cut off from their supply of oxycodone or Roxy or, um, you know, any of the the really heavy end uh, drugs that you can that are basically heroin. I mean, they basically are. They're kind of like Adderall and meth where it's like one chemical compound away from being the same thing. And so, you know, people get cut off and withdrawals are that bad that your brain will convince you to do anything and everything to get back on something so you don't feel it's I've told people it's like having every sickness compound into just one one experience that doesn't end for weeks right it's it's completely miserable i wouldn't wish it on my worst uh, enemy uh, but you know at the same time that is why it is it is realistic that you or anybody could get make the jump to heroin or fentanyl and that's why people in, that are in suburbia you know who may not look like your your stereotypical needle in the arm junkie right. are the majority of the junkies right now in our country right definitely and you know so it's it all just depends on the person and like you said it they it can go to very you know to an extreme very easily because again whether you like it or not i mean pain pills are the legal form of heroin basically let's just keep mm-hmm. it simple and you know, know this and i know this so but uh you know and like i said you will get to a point with the pain pills where they don't quite work to the level that you want and like you said you can get to a point where you inject them and and I didn't get to that point, but I don't look down on anybody that did, only because my mom was a nurse and she beat my butt about don't do any needle things. But I sure as heck crushed them, sniffed them, all that mm-hmm. stuff, because, again, boom, you want them to work, and you want them to work quickly, Fast. and they start to lose yeah. that effect once you've been on it long-term, and I was on them almost 20 years, so yes. But coming back, and we're going to get back to the, the mm-hmm. journey, right, is, yeah. is that getting on all those medications, everything else, boom, just crazy weight gain, man. I mean, I was up to 400 pounds before I knew it within like two or three years. And during that time frame is when I also am getting in trouble. You know, I had a road rage incident with a guy who was dressed in his regular clothes and his regular vehicle. I mean, something happened where I, I saw that he, in my opinion, he had done something wrong towards me. So I wanted to kind of right this wrong in this moment. 
And I took it way overboard, you know, when I wanted to chase him and I ended up running into the back of his vehicle and it just happened to be that this guy's an off-duty cop. So that moment right there, man, is where it really, my life kind of went straight into the gutter is because it was uh, criminal mischief, but it was felony criminal mischief because it was property damage greater than $1,500. So anybody who has gotten a felony or the lowest kind you can possibly get, it doesn't matter whether it's the lowest or the highest, the consequences are the same. You can get no job. You can't, you, you, there's so many things you cannot do. And it, it and for me, man, it, it just, I quit. I quit on life. I said, you know what? Forget it. I'm done. I will just sit here. I will. It's just a done deal. I will sit here with my, my pain in my body. I will take these pills. I will drink. I just because it's over and uh, done. Um, that moment cost me, you know, doing a six figure job. It, I lost my house, you know, and going through a divorce. I mean, it just was like that moment of that tipping point man. the tipping point of it all and um you know to the point where i had to go live in the salvation army you know and i was there for almost a two-year time period and um you know all this man i was so bad when it comes to you know again i was on 80 milligrams of oxy a day the drinking you know the bipolar medications i mean so bad i couldn't even barely speak um and I, if i did speak to you i mumbled and if i was sitting there around you in the middle of our conversation i'd not often go to sleep mm -hmm. i mean it was bad so bottom line is that uh you know, they looked at that and basically put me on um, disability because there's nothing I could do. You know, I, and I wasn't functioning. So, again, man, you would think that at that moment I could take a look at myself and realize that I need to make a change, but I didn't. I just kind of gave up because I was just like, you know, I've been working my butt off my entire life, and uh, here we are. That rock bottom, people talk about, oh, you wait till you hit rock bottom. I, that's always been kind of a myth to me because there was – you know, there are there are tipping points, there right. are moments, you know, when things get much worse, but it can always get worse. If it, I, I've never had that moment where, okay, this is rock bottom. All right, I'm going to turn myself around. You know, I looked at it, I was terrified when I looked at how much worse it could get. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when I was, you know, shooting up, crushing up the pills and shooting them up, I'm like, man, I'm if I knew somebody who had heroin, mm. I would be addicted to heroin. Mm. That's the only thing preventing me from making that leap was right. that I just didn't, I didn't have a connect. I didn't know anybody that had it. Right. Had I known somebody that had it, my life could be completely different right now. Right. In a bad way. Yeah. You know, um, and I was fortunate enough to have family and friends and even, and even coworkers and colleagues that had, a lot of them had been through the same thing I found out, which is fascinating how many people have gone through this and we don't talk about it openly enough Right. when people that you see every day have right. gone through the same thing you're going through. And so, um, so I was fortunate in that regard, but it still, I, it took me years. I, it took me years to finally find my way out. It wasn't just an overnight and it isn't a willpower thing. It isn't just a, no. you know, I'm just going to hit rock bottom willpower going to overcome it. That's just not how it works. Right. No, it's, it's not at all. You know, and it's like, that's why people were thinking for me, it's like they, they're seeing me live in the Salvation Army. They're seeing that, I'm 400 pounds. They're seeing that I can barely speak, and they're thinking, okay, this is rock bottom. Well, he's going to turn around. Like you said, you don't recognize where mm -hmm. you're really at, and everybody has a different rock bottom is what people have to understand is is what is your rock bottom isn't mine. What mine is isn't going to be the next person's. Everybody has their difference. But I can tell you this much is I just stayed stuck in that rut for about almost a 10-year period. And um, But during that time, there's a guy who gave me a call, and uh, 
he just contacted me off of uh, Facebook through Messenger. And you got to know, I had basically almost zero friends at this time in my life because everybody was just gone. And I'm just lonely. I'm sitting there. I'm basically kind of drinking. And this guy reaches out. And this is like the first message I think I ever got on Messenger through Facebook. And he told me, you know, hey, I, you know, I used to love watching you play. You know, you were one of my favorite fullbacks. Can I give you a call? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, dude, I, I'm looking around like, it's just me, myself, and this bottle. Sure, you can call me. And this guy, you know, his name actually ended up being Eric Dodson. He doesn't mind me sharing his name. And he just needed somebody to talk to. All his family, he was drinking. All his family didn't want anything to do with him. I mean, he was in the gutter, all that kind of stuff. And I just simply was there, had a conversation with this guy, and was just there, just kind of an earpiece. And I, I ended up being kind of in that 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 situation with him for a couple of months, Um and it's just really weird because, you know, at this time, I end up leaving the state. I go down to Mississippi for a bit because my parents are there. My oldest sister is there. And I just want to be around somebody, you know, some kind of family. And it's this guy who I sat there and, and allowed to call me and spoke with. He's the one who sends me a message saying, hey, by the way, I just found out there's this foundation called the Nebraska Grace Foundation, and they help ex-athletes that are in need, and if they have a specific surgery they need, then they might help them They help them do that. He's like, do you mind if I give your name to them? And again, I'm in that point, man, where I'm just, there's so much, there's nothing positive happened for me for a long time that I'm just kind of- He was like, it can't get worse. It can't get worse, and then at the same time, I'm, I'm laughing at myself saying, yeah, this this group's really going to help yeah, me, sure. Yeah, this is going to happen. So I tell him, I say, go ahead, you can submit my name, man, I doubt it, whatever, you know, and I don't even get a second thought and I'd say that same day I don't know about an hour later you know Jerry Murtaugh gives me a call and Murt tells me hey you know and Murt calls everybody kid that's just Murt. And Murt is with Jerry Murtaugh's with the, he's the the founder of the Nebraska Grades Foundation yes he is thank know. you for clarifying that and so so Murt calls me and say hey kid you know we found that you you know you you, you need a back surgery you know that's really kind of been the one of the main detrimental things in your life and we want to help you to do that um so I filled out the information he connected me with the person who at the time was with them named Margie Smith and I mean, from that day on, man, Margie was just held, holding my hand and everything else. And the days were, which were almost every single day where I was down the dumps feeling like, man, you know, I've ruined my life. There's, It's over for me. All that kind of stuff, man. Yeah. She just held my hand and said, you know what, Willie, there was once a time where you did some great things. You, you, you not only played on the field and started on the field, but you also, you know, she pointed out things like, you know, I was a member on the Brooke Barringer Citizenship Team. You know, I got that award. is because, again, all the community service and stuff I did. And, again, I don't say that to beat my chest or pat me on the back. I just, those were the type of things, and that was the kind of person That's I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I lost complete focus on that. That positive stuff didn't even come to mind. All I thought was the mistake I made and just the, the dumb decisions. So, we'll fast forward, and it's like they gave me the surgery I need. And so, boom, man, that was awesome. Got the back surgery. I'm feeling good. And uh, lost a ton of weight with it and everything else. And uh, but then the pain pills prescription ends because again, I'm no longer medically need this this pain yeah, pill. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So then, like you say, all of a sudden, and, and there's times where I wanted to try and stop the pain pills and would. And like you said, you start to feel the withdrawal and you're like, yeah, nope. Yeah. You seek it out as quick as you can. If a certain doctor don't want to give it to you, you go to the next doctor. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is, I realized at this point that uh, it was over. And uh, I was going to have to figure something out. And, uh, you know, I started dating who is my fiance now. I started, I started dating her, and she pointed out, she's like, you know what, I think you're addicted to those things. And, boy, I was hot because I'm like, I don't get addicted. You can't get addicted. Yeah. I'm not addicted. And then I looked up. <laughs> she gave me an ultimatum. So I ended up looking up the word addict and reading about it that night and everything else. And I said, all right, you know what, at the end of the day, maybe you're right. You know, I, 
And I gave her this commitment. I said, I will no longer take a pain pill. I'll give you my word on that. But when you give somebody your word on a specific freaking up, uh, <laughs> if you give it on pain pills, that didn't say you won't drink. That didn't say yeah. you wouldn't, you know, do any other kind of drug, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's an open window. So what I want to say about that is, and with me and my journey, is the fact that the pain pills were gone. Um, it was time to do something different. Um, having had that help from the Brass Greats Foundation, having had a retweaking of my mind to want to do something positive, I'm still recognizing, though, that emotionally something is wrong, something is off, and I need to do something about it. So as I'm going through time and I'm, you know, Nebraska Greats has me doing something where I came up, flew up here, did a golfing event, went back down there in Mississippi. Things started changing, started meeting some people, um, came back up here to Nebraska. And this is where it all, this, this is where I hit my moment of this, is that for months and months of drinking, no more pain pills, I just got to that point, man, where every time I drank, I was just so sad. I felt so alienated. I felt, all I wanted to do, honestly, I was to the point of just being suicidal. And so the one day, it was on October 20th, 2018, I'm sitting there watching the Nebraska game, and I just started drinking. Right before the game happened, I went out in the mid, mid, mid-time of it and got some more to drink, got more beers. I was drinking Miller Life, the champagne of beers, or, right, or Miller High Life. Yeah. And so then I grab a 3.75 you know, liter of, of Crown Apple. Once I'm done drinking all those beers, which is at least a case, at least 30 of them, and I'm drinking that, I'm saying to myself, you need to slow it down. We're doing okay. I'm just telling myself we need to slow it down because you're drinking this like water. And you, it, it, But it was my day, man, where it all hit the fan, and I was just like just crying because I'm like, I have had – I've been blessed where I'm better physically, but mentally, again, I'm just off and I don't know what's wrong. That day, I literally drank myself into a coma because in the mix of doing that, it took, I had a whole bunch of clonopin at the time, right? Because that's one of those medications they'll give you. They're thinking you're bipolar. It's a clonopin mm-hmm. or the Xanax and all that stuff. So Which like, is similar effect to, you know, those uh, benzoids. The, yes, where they the benzodiazepines. Same, same effect as alcohol, basically. Exactly. And it's like, so anybody who is, is an addict or an alcoholic, when you, that's the danger is giving them a benzodiazepine because it is very similar. So the benzos again come back to the clonopins, the Xanax, the ambi- uh, the lorazepam, lorazepam. You know, so yeah, so all those things. So again, you have to be careful. So I say all that because again, that was my day. That was the thing. I drank myself into a coma, and I literally, I I, I had an out of, an out of body experience with that, and it, it was. I won't go into details because again, if you don't know me, it'll sound too weird to you, and that's fine. But I can tell you, when I came out of that coma, um, and it was the next day, it was crazy. It was out of the, it, they weren't expecting it. My arms are still strapped to the gurney. There was only one nurse in the room, and I'm still intubated. So I wake up, I got that tube all the way down my throat, and my arms are strapped to the gurney, and I'm freaking out. Um, and so she's freaking out because they weren't expecting that. So, anyways, they helped me get out of that, everything else. We pulled the tube out. But at that moment, this is what I realized from that, that, that spiritual experience I had in that coma and the bright light that I saw was God was finally saying to me, you've had enough chances. You, you try slitting your wrist. You've been on all these pain, you know, as far as you've overdosed many times that I've never even felt the consequence from, never, ever been hospitalized from. But he's like, this is it. This is your chance. I want you to get back down there. I want you to do my will. And uh, I knew in that moment, that's my God moment, right? And I like to use that term of God, but I like to use an acronym. That, that was my gift of desperation moment because that's the moment where I became willing to do whatever it took to no longer have to drink, to no longer have to use anything to numb me, to medicate me, to help me to be able to cope with life, right? And so 
in that moment of being willing, I realized that I needed to go to treatment because I needed I needed help because I didn't know any way to do that at that time. I didn't know how to do anything without drinking, how to do anything without a pain pill. I had no clue how to do it, and I knew I had to learn. So one of the guys I met, and that's the wonderful thing about playing football, right, is you get a, a, a this, this alumni, this this fraternity of brothers that you, even if you didn't play with them, you're still connected to them. Mm-hmm. So one of those guys happened to be Bob Newton for me. I had met him somehow through Facebook, whatever. I reached out to Bob because no one would take my insurance around here. No one. Because, again, having been on disability, it's a Medicare type of insurance. No one accepted it for treatment. So I reached out to Bob and I said, Bob, look, this is what happened. I told him about me going into a coma, telling him I woke up out of it and I need help because, again, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. He made a phone call. Him, him and Pat Gleason were able to get me into a place called Recovery Ways down in Salt Lake City, Utah. So the moment I got out of the hospital, I had about three hours to go home, pack, and then fly down there. And uh, the great thing about being at, at, at Recovery Ways in Salt Lake City, Utah, is that they are a dual uh, diagnosis facility where they deal with mental health and they deal with substance abuse. And so that head psychologist there, or psychiatrist, he was able to actually look at everything and look at my history and my patterns, and he was able to look me in my eyes and say to me immediately, i got good news and bad news for you. He's like, anyways, <laughs> he tells me, bottom line is this, you're not bipolar, Willie, at all. You're not bipolar. So I'm taking you off all these medications. So no more benzos, no more sleeping meds, no more you know anything for anxiety. That's the benzos. So none of those type of things, right? No more things to sleep, anything like that. <clears throat> No more, which is the the most the best part was no more uh, antipsychotics at all, mm-hmm. right? All which of, those those can just uh, uh, what I forget the name of the one that 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 they had me on for a long time, which is to help you sleep at night. But it just it, it numbs your creativity and your your brain. Is that Seroquel? Uh, yes, Seroquel. Okay. Yeah, Seroquel. And I just felt like an absolute zombie on that. Yes, and all so- day long. And Seroquel was something I had been on yeah. myself, like I said, for over mm-hmm. a decade. So that was one of the main ones, too, that they were like, yeah, no. So bottom line with that and being at treatment is I found out that, like you said, when you read my story, you said you had a moment of, aha, that's a person that gets it, right? Mm-hmm. And you have that moment where you run, run and give them a hug. You truly yeah. do. That's what I felt for the first time at treatment because I'm in a room with people. And at that point, let me tell you what, man, I don't know if I helped influence the room or what, but I know that I was the biggest guy there, you know, that happens. But I was also an emotional wreck. Dude, I cried for at least a week straight, right? So, and it's like, you know, if you ever seen Armageddon, you see the big black dude that's, you know, that's crying like crazy. Yeah. Like, I was that way for a week, man, because, yeah. again, I hadn't processed or felt emotion for so long. And when you haven't done that, and when you finally do, when you get sober, man, it's overwhelming, you yes. know? And the, I always tell people there is a big difference between sobriety, being clean and sober, and recovery yes and so you were clean off of the pain pills and stuff and you can even be clean and i i had this up until a year ago when i kind of i got into getting back into my health and physical fitness right that was the missing link for me because i still for even though i i'm coming up in january will be five years sober but uh i for the first two and a half three years of that I, I felt like crap still even though I was clean and sober I hadn't processed any of it and my biggest regret is I didn't go to a treatment center that I tried to just I went through therapy and counseling and everything but I uh, did outpatient never did just the full commitment to the treatment so it took me a lot longer than it probably should have right. which is why I always recommend to people just just dive in and do it because that's my only that's my biggest regret is I, I could have gained two or three years back 
you know, but once once you find that and you start to get into the recovery mode, which I that's where I've been over the last year, you that's when you start to make lightning progress of just within yourself, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, uh, and physically too, just your physical health. And that's where I'm like, you know, people are saying, Oh Matt, you lost all this weight, you look great. And like, yeah, that's I don't that's great. Yeah. Right. You know, but right. I mean I, what's impressive to me, what I'm most happy about is how it's making me feel on the inside. Right. Because I feel like I did when I was 23. I haven't felt this way since for 16 years, you that's know? That's awesome. Yeah. So. And, that, and that's a big thing. That's a huge thing that a lot of people don't understand. It's like at that moment, you know, again, having that willingness, it's like you said. Had I, I love the fact that I went there to Recovery Ways because, again, I got a chance to process all that all the trauma is like people don't understand that when you start and you experience things in life when you're two and all that stuff it the trauma of it is that it has a certain uh it logs in the body your body responds in different ways than other people so when we're adults what might be not be a very stressful thing to somebody else it's huge to you because your body responds to it in a different manner it's a trigger you know it's a huge trigger yeah mm -hmm. and so again those are the things that you want to numb away so like you said there's a huge difference in just being sober right not drinking not using and then work on a program of recovery or having recovery happen in your life. Yeah. And so, you know, that was my main goal is because, again, some people who are just sober, and they might be sober for 20 years, right, where they just don't drink or they don't use, but they're miserable. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're people that you have to walk on eggshells around. My dad was that way, and, you know, and that's okay. But you, you have to walk, around, walk on eggshells around those people because they're going to go off at any moment because the wiring in the brain hasn't changed. Yeah. It's still the same. It's just they're not numbing it. And it's kind of to the point where some of those people, you're like, just drink already because <laughs> you're a lot nicer of a person if you just drink, yeah, you yeah. know? So like you said, if you don't do anything different and you just don't drink and just don't use, then you're miserable because you're dealing with all the emotions, the feelings, the same thought process that you were and you had to numb them away. But once you get into recovery, right, that's where I learned about emotional sobriety was that treatment. Mm -hmm. I learned how to process emotions. I learned that... You know, an emotion that I thought was, oh, my gosh, it was it was the end of life moment, you know, that something simple, just being too happy or being too sad at that moment. I felt like that was just going to last all day, all night. Mm -hmm. Well, I learned a treatment. No, it actually lasts about 30 seconds to 45 seconds. I learned that, you know what, there's different breathing techniques while I'm feeling super anxious that I can do. That's way more healthy than me having to pop an anti-anxiety pill. Yeah. Right. And it's so simple. It's like inhaling for four seconds, holding for seven seconds, exhaling for six seconds. Or just the difference you know? between breathing through your, your stomach, your diaphragm and through your shoulders. You know, I couldn't figure out for the longest time I, I dealing with horrible anxiety and I would, you know, be going into a meeting or someone would say something that would trigger my anxiety. And I start taking these deep breaths and my shoulders are going up and down and I'm just feeling worse. Yeah. Well, come to find out. Yeah, that's because you want to breathe through your stomach, the deep breathe through your diaphragm you don't want to move your shoulders up and down that actually increases your heart rate by doing that so yeah the little things and ways to process identify your emotions we've talked a lot about that on this podcast they're like okay what am i feeling right now why am i feeling that way right and you can actually take that and you can you can rebrand that emotion and say no okay i'm i'm not feeling anxiety this is excitement for right. this and you can turn it into a positive thing yeah and that that right there it, that is the most beautiful thing about like you said, being in recovery is is to learn those different things and a willingness to learn about those things so you can handle them in a healthier way. My big one was anger, right? I'm thinking that, you know, at anything, I'm angry. 
like you said, you learn in recovery to identify things specifically. So I learned that anger is a secondary emotion. There's something else that is there that I need to identify. So now what I've learned quickly to do when I'm feeling that moment of what I thought was anger is that I'm able to quickly identify, okay, say you and I had an interaction, you said something, I'm able to identify immediately say, okay, what you said kind of embarrassed me. It, it frustrated me. It, it did like those specific things. Once I can label that it frustrated me and it embarrassed me, then I can, I can process those things, mm-hmm. right? I don't have to just be angry and, and respond in a certain way because that's the other thing about recovery. It teaches you how to respond in a, an appropriate fashion, yeah. right? Not, not somebody comes at you a certain way, you come back at them even harder, right? Those mm-hmm. things. No, you learn different things and you learn to say, you know, really simply, like at the end of the day, instead of coming back mean, I can just simply say, hey, Matt, what you said to me, it, it really kind of embarrassed me. You said it in front of a couple of people, you know, maybe next time, if you don't mind, maybe we can talk about it where it's just you and I or yeah. something like that. I mean, but somebody like me, I didn't have the tools to know really how to do that. I did it on a professional manner where I knew that you don't criticize somebody in front of a group of people. I knew that. Yeah. Right. But when it's kind of a one on one thing and we're kind of heated or mm-hmm. something, I didn't know how to come back you know, in a healthy manner. And that's what being in recovery has taught me, right? And then just real quick is, you know, I want to go ahead and talk about how once I was at treatment, once I started getting those those little tidbits, man, I did start feeling better. Because like you said, you will start feeling better when you don't drink or use. But man, at the end of the day, that's a pink cloud moment. Because that, that will fall off when something major happens again, whether it's a death in the family or it's even something simple where somebody doubts you and your ability to stay sober, you know, mm-hmm. in any kind of fashion. You... For me, the old me would have been like, oh, you, you don't think I can stay on this wagon? Like, I get mad and I'd be like, well, I'm not going to stay on this wagon because I'm going to show you. And the funny thing is, at the end of the day, you find out that only hurts you. It doesn't hurt them. Yeah. And you sitting there frustrated or mad at somebody, you're allowing them to have free rental space in your brain. It doesn't yeah, impact yeah, yeah. them, that's right? That's a big thing. We've talked about that a lot, too, because that, that, that's, and that's, that's one thing for me. I've had, to, I've had to learn to let things go in a healthy way. You know, you don't want to you don't just ignore things and not process things, but you have to let things go in a healthy way. And an easy way for me to do that, and it's I don't get angry in traffic anymore, just little things like that, because I think, okay, that person just cut me off. Well, they probably got something else going on in their life. You know, maybe they're late to this important job that means everything to them, or maybe, you know, they just got dumped by their significant other. Maybe they're going through a hard time and they got a mom or dad in the hospital and they can't visit them because of COVID or what. Right. You know, I mean, you think about all the things that motivate our impulse reactions throughout the day right. that we do almost just subconsciously. And if you can understand that and say, okay, I get it. Like, it's not me, it's them. You know, right. they're they're going through something else that has nothing to do with me. Right. And and you're right, the rental space in your brain, man, that's, that's tough to do because we sit there and I, I will do that even today. I, I have to like, talked myself into okay you gotta let this go because are they sitting there thinking about it right no no you're letting this dominate your mental space your brain in a negative way something that they said six seven eight hours ago that they haven't thought about since so what good is it doing exactly you know and you and me probably could do this once a week every week for a while because (laughs) that's the thing people don't get is there's so much involved in recovery there's so Mm -hmm. much involved when it comes to uh, emotional sobriety there's so much involved when it comes to different thought processes because those thought processes whether you like it or not and that's called the emotional sobriety if you don't take care of the emotional sobriety it's going to lead you back out to drinking and using Mm -hmm. you know that's where i was i told you uh, up till a little over about a year and a half ago i had my right shoulder completely replaced which similar to your back surgery was like, that was the thing that allowed me to finally 
start exercising again because right. I couldn't really do much of anything without being in extreme pain. I was even though I was off the pain meds, it was still in a lot of pain all the time. And so for me, it was the the big thing that working out gave me was that routine. I don't know if you found anything in your recovery, um, but that you, finding that uh, there's some books and stuff I read, some counseling and therapy that I did that really opened my eyes to that emotional. Uh, recovery you're talking about and then uh, emotional sobriety uh, that you're talking about and then having a routine where it's like okay I remember this routine I used to do powerlifting in college like I remember this routine of working out right yes okay right. so now I got that going and I can see progress on myself physically and all of a sudden it was within a month or two right I felt like a completely different person and it just kept getting better and better and better and I'm like, man, I feel like that 23 year old me again, you right. know. And uh, and so I don't know if you did you have any sort of routine or anything like that that kind of helped you keep keep yourself in in line? Because I know you're fit, right? Obviously now. Well, and, and that was that's again why I'm so grateful I went to Recovery Ways is at that place is again again the the, the learning part of the most on sobriety. Then they had us on a schedule, right, where you do different things every day. They got us back involved where you go out and you do something fun once a week. They had us to where you go work out a couple times a week. I mean, those were the things that started helping me, right? And mm -hmm. so when I got back, I mean, again, I was willing to do whatever it took. And so is this a primarily two people in recovery a bit with this or no? Is it just everybody too? As so far as the show? This. Yes, the show. Yeah, no, it's just you and me talking here today. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, so what I'm asking, uh, I'm trying to figure out is that, so with with me and, and my willingness, Bob Newton told me when I got back to Omaha, the first thing I need to do is start working a program of recovery. So if you're in recovery, you know that there's different kinds of programs you can work, and we don't talk about any specifics when it comes to any of them. But that right there is what helped me, is, is I do my program of recovery, because at the end of the day, that's what continued to help me to learn how to process things, to handle them in the right way. To hit the pause button because just like you pointed out, Matt, where you said now when you're in traffic, somebody cuts you off. Well, you're able to hit the pause button and you can actually bring into your brain that they might have something going on. Mm -hmm. Well, the old me didn't have that, right? I'm just like, they just cut me off. Yeah, I'm going to you know, yell at them. Yeah, yeah, something, right? So it's just like I need to honk my horn, I need to flick them off. But like you said, no. Now we can sit back and be like, well, that person, if they're doing that, you know, yeah, they must have something going on. And even if it's something so simple, like they're having a bad day, yeah. we learn that we don't have to react to somebody's bad day because yeah. just because they're having that's, a bad day doesn't mean I have to have a bad that's day. That's the only thing we can control in life is how we react and respond to things. Right. You know, we can't control things, external things that are going to happen to us. And a big thing with that, I think a lesson that people can take from, uh, from addiction uh, and, and AA and treatment centers around the world is the lesson that they teach you that you you have to give up surrender control. I do not have control over this. You right. do not have control over COVID. Right. You know, and you never will have control over this pandemic. Right. But you do control how you react and how you respond to it. Exactly. And that's the wonderful thing, like I said, that I love about a recovery a program of recovery is the fact that I've learned that, number one, like you said, I can't control everything. Trying to control everything is what gives me that issue and that problem, right? What makes me want to drink and, and, and use learning I don't have to and that it's out of my control, like you said, then all I'm responsible for is how I act and how I behave in certain situations, how I respond to them. And by working a program, it gives me the the tools on how to do that and how mm -hmm. to do it in the right manner. So again, if we're going back to just finish up kind of a bit with my story is that that's where that started. Also at treatment, they did some diagnosis stuff to see how your brain works. Um, to see as far as how quickly you respond to different things, kind of like some IQ testing, stuff like that. So I found for me that it was very important for me to get back to the old me that loved working out, but not only working out and being physically fit, 
mentally right, right? Mm -hmm. Training my brain again, having a wealth of of knowledge that's coming in. Because again, that's what makes me happy and gives me joy. So I knew coming back from treatment that I was going to get back in the classroom. I knew that having done pharmaceutical sales, one of the things I loved about it was when I first got it in the 2000, it was patient-centered focus. So whatever you could do about the patient that was on that mimicked and, and, and mirrored what your product did, you only wanted those patients because it was about helping them. By 2007, man, it's taken a complete shift to where it's put every patient on your drug. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I was miserable, right? So the thing that I, I loved was working about the patient, learning about a patient, yeah. helping a patient. So that's how I knew nursing is what I wanted to do. I had contacted Creighton and, and had gotten an idea because I don't know what it was, but that was just my calling. My calling was, hey, Creighton is a school you want to go to. It's a nursing program you mm-hmm. want to be in. So I talked with them, found out what I needed, the specific classes, and, and, I, and I went after it. It was like 12 classes I needed to do, you know, and just started baby stepping it one day at a time. That's one of the things we learn in recovery, right? We just yeah. take it one day at a time, try and stay in the now. Don't worry about the past because you can't do anything about it. And you don't really worry about the future. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're all human beings where we have our moments where we're thinking about future stuff, we're thinking about past stuff. Mm-hmm. But we can process them now in a healthy yeah. manner saying that, hey, you know what, that's just a quick moment. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So get back into what's important and what's going on now. So that's what I did, man. It's just uh, in doing that, and it's like it's allowed me to but be two years sober by at, at, um, October 21st, 2018. And in the midst of all this stuff with this pandemic, everything that's going on, the extremes that are being brought out in the media when it comes to left and right and all that, I, I get to, because of my program of recovery, I don't have to worry about that as much at all. I don't, because I look at it not about what the person looks like that's doing the act, what the person mm-hmm. looked like that's on the receiving end of the act. I look at the act itself. I can actually look at that, not worry about what everybody else is saying. I look at it and I say, is that action, is that action morally, ethically, legally right or wrong? And when I can look at that, then I can deem to myself the decision on it, right? And how mm-hmm. I think about it. So that's the wonderful thing about it, of recovery. But then the whole situation, man, with this whole pandemic, not being able to hug people. You can't see people's facial expressions. Like, I get, because even myself, it gives me a level of disconnect. And uh, I don't like it. But I also am able to say, because of recovery, this isn't going to last forever. You know what I mean? And I'm able to see that, you know, I have to try and take away something positive. So Mm -hmm. my positive is like, I'm able to see some people at certain times and if I know that they're ha- having safe practices, you know, then at that moment I can, you know, interact with them in a certain way, whatever. But, you know, it's hard to say whatever it's, it is I'm trying to say, but it, yeah, this pandemic is a tough situation, period. And, and that's why you're seeing, and I, I've, and that's one reason that I started this podcast was I could see once this pandemic hit and what ended up becoming predictions by experts and then, came to fruition is the increase in in relapses and overdoses it is tough it's hard because you can't escape and you can't you can't escape it anything you can't find that temporary release or that fun thing that you used to do and sometimes you know even when the gyms were closed it's like you can't even go work out so then you lose that routine you know uh, people can't go to their aa or na meetings and they lose that and it's 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 easy to slip up. It really is. And especially when all you want is to just numb yourself from everything that's going on. Yeah. So it is a challenge. And so that's why it's more important than ever to talk about it, to share our stories. Uh, and man, I appreciate you sharing yours and you're gonna have to come back on because we'll have to get into the psychology uh, of, of recovery. Um, because there's, there's, there's a lot to that that applies to, I think 
not just addiction, but just in everybody and just how we handle ourselves right. and how we re- react and respond to things. Um, but man, your story is inspiring. And like I said, from the first moment when I, we guys, we met through the foundation, um, and you were still going through some stuff then yeah, because that was probably was. about when we met. Yep. So, um, so man, I, I just, I appreciate you being open and, uh, and sharing your story here on the, on the podcast, man. It means a lot to, uh, a lot of people. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, man. Thanks for having me on. And like I said, that's the wonderful thing about recovery is it just teaches you to be honest and open, man, because again, that helps me, you know, and in turn, I guess maybe it helps somebody else that gets yeah. a chance to hear it. I, you know, I don't know, but again, man, that's, that's, that's that whole thing about just being completely humble about yeah. it. It is what it is. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. we're not no longer, are we embarrassed or ashamed of it because you know, we get to learn from it and move forward. So thanks again for having me on. And thank you so much for listening to It's The Fix podcast here. Please share with your friends, like, and subscribe. And if you are so kind, give us a five-star review on Apple. If you're listening or anywhere, you get your podcast. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.